Doc Podcast with your charismatic host and prominent safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Be entertained and informed as the Safety Doc discusses both best and bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. The truth will keep you safe. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. This is Dr. David Perodin, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert, Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. Hi, everybody. This is David, and welcome to another episode of the Safety Doc Podcast, episode 63 with our guest, TJ Martinell. A thank you to John Grant and the 405 Media for airing the Safety Doc podcast. 2 p.m. PST daily on the 405media.com out of Los Angeles, California. You can find blog posts, um, responses, anything you want. Just visit the 405. Of course, the show is on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean. Hey, you look for it, you'll find it. Thank you so much for following and supporting the Safety Doc podcast. So I was going through the Harvard Business Review, and I've mentioned before on the show that I like to pull some of the research summaries that they do, kind of a meta-analysis, which means they take different research studies and kind of boil them down into um, you know, a, a conclusion or more of a summary statement. And they do a great job of that, a, the Harvard Business Review. Uh, recently did a piece about rituals and how rituals add value to our lives, how they add value to things. And recently, I've also become a listener of TJ Martinell, who now um, has released, I believe, TJ, your 10th podcast. Am I correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay. And, and I've, I've really appreciated his perspective. And um, as we get into this, you know, the show is, is about uh, focusing on, on TJ. But uh, TJ has some very special rituals. And also, I think TJ brings to us a perspective of somebody um, with much wisdom for his age. And, you know, I, I guess not to categorize you, TJ, as a, as a millennial, but somebody who has followed in the footsteps of advice of someone like Aaron Clary, who we both know in reconnaissance, in, in understanding, exploring your world, then finding your own way and making decisions. Um, and before we, we get into this, one of the things that, that it just still resonates with me from one of your podcasts, you talked about where there was an unexpected snow. So you got your, um, got your snow gear and, and you went out with your snowshoes. And instead of going on the trail, um, <laughs> because obviously the, the trail goes through the trees and the snow doesn't you know, get down to the ground, stays up in the trees so that... The trail quickly gets gets trampled down, and there isn't a lot of snow. Um, you went off that, and, and you went up the, the side of, of I guess this this mountain or hill, 
you know, which didn't have trees, and you made your own path. And I think that resonates through all of your work, um, that you, you make your own path. And you, and you choose the path which is going to um, probably be more, I, I would say, more difficult, and it's also going to have more discovery, and it's going to reveal more to you, and it's also going to give you more opportunity for introspection. So with that, I am glad to introduce TJ Martinell, and TJ, please tell us about yourself. Well, thanks for having me on the show, David. Um, like you said, my name is TJ Martinell. I'm an author, writer, and reporter from Washington State. I'm a native Washingtonian, unlike a lot of the people who are moving up here um, recently. And I've been in journalism since I was in high school, and I've been writing for different newspapers for uh, the to sound area and now I work for an online news site that covers Washington State industry. I'm also um, the author of a couple books that are available on Amazon, The Stringers and the Informers. And then I also do just a lot of stuff on the side as a writer. I work um, or I volunteer with the Tenth Amendment Center, which is a constitutional think tank based in Los Angeles. And I've worked with them for about, uh, I believe, since 2014. But uh, as you were mentioning on the the hike that I took a couple weeks ago when the there was that surprise snowfall, it right. it is a good analogy because it was it was went dead um, dead straight up that ridge and so I actually had to stop a few times. I'm in pretty good shape. I lift almost daily, but it was still very difficult because it was there was no uh, switchbacks for you to go up right uh, through. And so it was more difficult, but the reward was that I got a view that I think very few people who go on that, that snowshoe trail ever get to see. And so that, and there was not a whole lot of other people there. I think that that's one thing with the, the lifestyle is that you're also going to end up doing a lot of things on your own because that's it's not going to fit. And it's not an issue of being right and wrong. It's more of what's best for you. And it may not be best for everybody else. So you got to make a decision about whether something is good for you and then do it even if it's even if other people are not going to be coming with you on whatever journey that is it's not it, like you said it's not the easy path but it's i think more fulfilling and satisfying than doing what's easy um, in the long term you've read um some of aaron clary's work and aaron clary can be found at captaincapitalism.blogspot.com and and I just want to bring that up because um, one of the books that he wrote was Reconnaissance Man, also <laughs> wrote a, a book on fiscal planning, a more of a common sense type approach, uh, Poor Richard's Retirement. Um, I guess when you talk, I, I also hear some words of, of Aaron resonate because Aaron hikes a lot and he has a podcast and, and I know that you follow Aaron. I also listen to his podcast. Um, and I, I think one point I'm going to bring up is most of the people that probably went and did the snowshoeing that day, never, it never crossed their mind to consider a different option. It was just, here's the path and here's, it's laid out. And I remember one thing that Aaron talked about in his, his book, um, Reconnaissance Man, um, have, have you read that one, TJ? You You know, I didn't get the chance to read Reconnaissance Man. I've read. Poor Richard's retirement and, okay. and did a review on that. So uh, in Reconnaissance Man, uh, Aaron talks about if you, you're you know, 18, 19, 20, go out and, and ex- 
experience the world. And, and you've actually done a lot of that. I, I was reading um, your your post about a pilgrimage to the British yeah. Isles, up England, Scotland, Ireland. Um, I actually went to the website of that, that pub you took a picture of, which was, um, was it ye old? Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it, was, it, it is phenomenal. Um, but yeah, it, your, the photography, um, what you've shared is, is, is outstanding. Um, oh, but what, what Aaron had shared, though, is he said, I could easily write itineraries for people to follow, but they need to, to discover on their own. You know, there's some guidelines and of if, you know, here's how to, to basically live, um, you know, inexpensively, like to live out of your car or something like that. But he said, I'm not going to give an itinerary because everybody has to discover that for themselves. And I thought that's really brilliant because what do we find? in in you know bookstores online and, and all of that it's like you know here's here's your trip you know plan this follow this well that right. might have worked for that person and they had a certain um you know meaning that they pulled from it but that doesn't mean that's going to resonate with you it's not going to have the same meaning and also you know like Aaron had said try things out and then you'll know if you like them or not and then the next time go through and the things that you like you know build upon those so um TJ, let's let's go into it's tjmartinell.com as your website. Yeah. So what can we find off of? And, and I'll also post this out, but it's um, TJ and and it's all one word: Martinell. M A R T I N E L L dot com. Um, what can we find on your website? So what you'll find is you'll find uh, links to my podcast. There's the RSS feed. There's also going to be links to my books that you can buy on Amazon. And then I've written a few essays. I've done so infrequently um, because I'm doing so much other writing for right. other sites. Right. There's going to be a page that will be dedicated to my some of my journalism work. And then there's going to be another page dedicated to um, issues that I've written about uh, concerning the Constitution and you know, American history and liberty and, and issues like that. And then I've also got a little bit of a biography. I'm planning to actually drop a new essay that's based on some of the values you were mentioning my wood burning. I've been doing that as part of this effort to have my home reflect my values. And people are always talking about what they want to see in their society and community around them. Well, they need to start with their own home. And so that'll have some of the photos um, of the woodwork that I've done. And then other uh, photos that I've taken. Um, You can also, they'll have my links to my social media stuff like Instagram, Twitter, and my Facebook page. So your your two books and the stringers and also the informers. Okay, mm-hmm. tell us tell us about the the books and and I, I want to build upon <laughs> that because I'm very intrigued. So I the stringers was conceived when I was I used to have a 20 mile commute every day from work when I was a, a young reporter and I was thinking of ways to come up with a a better business model for newspapers. You know how is a way that they could because this is newspaper industry has been declining and that certainly hasn't changed since 2012 and i finally just said well what if they just banned them then maybe people would read them right and then uh, th- that whole that question led me down to this sort of orwellian dystopia where you have a prohibition era except instead of alcohol the contraband is information awesome. and wow. what if what if the bootleggers instead of smuggling liquor were smuggling information via newspapers and it was also I started writing it at the time when 
the Edward Snowden yes. con- uh, revelations came about. And so I was thinking, well, what if people went off the internet completely just to get away from government surveillance and to obtain some sort of form of control over their life? I can't remember where I found found it, but after Edward Snowden's whole revelation, I think the Kremlin was ordering typewriters to start having physical copies of documents because the guy walked out of, with, right. you know, with with a, I think it was a thumb drive with gigabytes of data. Right. If that had all been physically printed out, he wouldn't have been able to do it. So this this return to a retroactive era, I thought was really intriguing. I also loved the 1930s, but I was told that you, you got to write for a modern audience. Well, what do you do? You put the past and the future, so to speak. So the book is set in a post-earthquake Seattle, where Seattle has been destroyed by an earthquake, and you have these newspaper gangs running the city. And it's it follows the this young reporter, and in the era, all professional. Um, legitimate journalism jobs are licensed like a doctor or a lawyer so you've got to pass their version of the bar you have to adhere to all these different standards and so you can't be a reporter without a license and that whole just brings up all these questions that we hear now when we they're talking about uh, you know the first amendment the fake news uh, debate right. censorship and and sites deplatforming people and then the sequel of course follows this young reporter and it's him trying to it's a a story that really is down to him trying to find his dad and find out more about him because he has this whole past that he discovers throughout the book and so there's the personal but there's also the the external situation that he's he's found himself in so but i i wrote i i wrote that in 2013 and what i've had people tell me since the 2016 election was that it anticipated a lot of the stuff that we're seeing today amazing which was yeah yeah so i not always the same here's an example that i'll give there was a plan by the fcc to put their their employee agents i guess or whatever you would say in different newsrooms to monitor how they determine what news that they run that is exactly what happens in my book. You have a government censor agent in every single newsroom who his approval is required for the publication of any story. So the, the FCC chairman at the time was calling this out because he thought it was a horrible idea. Well, that's exactly what I put in my book. Um, wow. So I thought it was, yeah. Wow. So TJ, you also have another book close to release, right? Yeah, it's a book called Men Who Walk Alone, and this yeah. was set in the 1930s, and it's a bit of a pulp noir, a gritty sort of story. A, a little bit is typically a familiar plot line. It's the one good cop in a bad town who's dealing with vigilantism. Ironically enough, there's that movie Death Wish that's coming out, uh, the, the remake. I have the original 1974 film starring Charles Bronson, and that I had just seen that when I was working on this this story and so it does try to deal with the same themes of when people when a government doesn't protect its citizens what recourse do they have what do they do and why would government see that as a threat to to them to have somebody else standing up for themselves and then how do you deal with where criminals 
and like the line between a corrupt police officer and a criminal, how do you deal with that? Uh, I also wanted to see more of the old-fashioned type Humphrey Bogart-type characters right. that we really don't see anymore no. in films. They're much more, I, I would say, unappealing for, for men like me or you or, or uh, Aaron Clary. Uh, so I, I deliberately wrote that, that book to have that kind of a... Uh, masculine, traditional masculine, unapologetic, and very uh, determined, as opposed to letting outside events control him and dictate his, his fate. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now... Back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Reminds me of the African Queen. Yeah. I, I love, love that movie. And also, I mean, a little more modern, but I would say still at the end of that era would be North by Northwest with Cary Grant. Um, but yeah, I... I'm fascinated by the 1930s, um, the setting, and, and what also draws me to that time frame is it's divorced of social media, and I think it's it's it allows um, it allows people to almost uh, free themselves from contemporary narratives where you know it does you, you can't write a contemporary narrative without obviously you know referencing frequently social media. Right. Um, I, I see it when my daughters watch, you know, TV shows on, on Disney instead of Snapchat, it's chat snap and all of this, but I mean, it's so, <laughs> you, you know, in, in the bizarre Vark and whatever, I mean, they're, they're, they're okay shows, but I mean, it's, it's just based on this complete extrinsic motivation and validation versus finding yourself. And I'd, I'd like to go and share a little bit. I was, um, yesterday I, I visited my, 84 year old aunt and i periodically will will go up in and she's she's an awesome fun aunt i mean if you could <laughs> if you can imagine um a, a, a 84 year old storyteller of life <laughs> she was a librarian um in new mexico before she got married and ran a bookmobile and carried a gun with her to shoot rattlesnakes if they <laughs> if they were on her path and as she stopped into she this. sounds interesting <laughs> enough to be your own story she has a declaration on her wall she showed me yesterday and i never knew this it, it's from the mayor of new mexico and you know back years and years ago but it is it is some special privilege of almost like a deputy sheriff type level and i have to look it up um but she said and she was serious she said there are very few of these that were ever given out and it does allow me some um privileges within new mexico which you know she's now in wisconsin but i was like wow um <laughs> but she but she was telling me this this story 
um, just just yesterday, and, it, and it, we actually drove past the area where she grew up. She she moved back to the town where she was raised, and of course, you know, my dad and the rest of the family. Uh, but they were close to a railroad track, and in the 1930s, the railroad um, basically what you would refer to as hobos, um, yeah. you know, just going town to town, would, would jump off the train um, behind their house and and walk up um, and knock on the door and would say, "Do you have any food or to spare, or can I do some work for any amount of money?" Well, you know, my, you know. My dad's family wasn't wealthy by any means, um, but of course that they would try to help people out, or they would say, "We have some extra, you know, produce in the garden. You're welcome to it." And I'm, I'm, she's, you know, she, and she's pointing it out. I mean, we're we're right there. We are right there, um, you know. But instead of you know 1938 or whenever this happened, you know, it's it's yesterday, and. It's so vivid, and, and she tells yeah. it, and, and it's almost, I'm driving home, and it's about 90 minutes to drive back to where I live, and um, I'm thinking, I, I feel that I've been denied that. I didn't, I, I, that experience of, of um, there, I mean, it, it was so lively the way she told it, and, and just the trust and that was something she said you just the, the trust you had in, in people and you tried to you know to help people out and um, yeah. but, you know of course you know we weren't naive we were you know looking out but but I'm like oh I I get I was just fascinated by that going home and and I had the radio off and that that's something else DJ you know is um, if I'm not listening to a podcast and and I really don't do mainstream media anymore I don't know about you but I I don't I mean I've just I I Someone That's kind of the way it is with me. <laughs> yeah, someone will say, hey, did you know whatever or whatever? And I'm like, I've, I have no idea. I, mean, <laughs> I barely track like, the, the weather. Yeah. I have to stay <laughs> abreast of things a little bit just because of my job. So I'm, yeah. I am I monitor social media for stuff that's relevant. But it's like everything. you got to know when the limit uh, and be very intentional about restricting the amount of use of anything. So... Uh, you know, thank you for for your books, and and also I, again, I love the the time period. Um, and reading is something I, I greatly value and appreciate. Um, and even going down, you know, to our library, they have like a little. Um, they built an area as a fireplace, and and they kind of make it into a cozy. Um, you know, a, a, you, there's some windows and and it's just it's a really nice place to to read i don't kind of like to read at home but um it was i I was there uh last year and i had this this massive like 24 ounce um black coffee and and (laughs) of course like as i'm setting up my you know my book i knock over this coffee and and it's all over the floor the synthetic wood floor so i go to the bathroom and i i retrieve all of these you know industrial towels and and the thing is (laughs) Like it, everyone was indifferent to it. I mean, um, they just I just cleaned it up and, and put it away and the floor was brown anyway, so it didn't matter, but I'm like, oh I'm like, no, no. Um so when you went to you know, you went to the British Isles, England to Scotland. In previous you were um checking out the the Civil War battlefields out east. 
Am I, I correct in that? Like, you know, about yeah. a year or two ago or whatever. So tell me about that experience. Why did you do that? What did you expect? How was that part of, like, reconnaissance? Um, yeah, I, definitely. I, I'm really captivated by that because those are things I didn't do in my life. And, um, I, I mean, I, I followed a very linear path in, in my life. And tell me, tell me why you did this, how it impacted you and... Yeah. So a couple of years ago, I think it was 2016, I went to visit a relative of mine who lived uh, in Maryland and was stationed at the, the army base there. And I'd always wanted to go to the East Coast. I'd been to Boston once, and but hadn't. when you're young, you really don't think about that stuff. You're just, you're in your own little world. But I was really interested in seeing the Civil War battlefields, these monuments, and obviously I wanted to go finally see the Declaration of Independence, I wanted to see the U.S. Constitution, I wanted to see things that I had heard about and talked about, and what I've found is that you can look at something in a, in a photograph, or you can read about it, or you're talking about it, but until you actually go see it, you're never going to fully understand what you're talking about. And so we went to the Gettysburg battlefield and it was, I had seen the film that was, that was shot in the 1990s at right. the location right. and standing at the spot where General Armistead, who was a Confederate general, he was during Pickett's charge, which was this massive on the third day, the 15,000 men charged across the battlefield, trying to break the union lines. They were repulsed. This general made it the farthest to this one spot that's now marked and I was standing there thinking that this is exactly where he stood and then I look out to these the tree line on the other side of the battlefield and thought this is where these guys those those young boys and sold and you know maybe middle-aged men were in those trees waiting to come out to right. what they could rightfully believe was to their deaths in um, in pursuit of victory and I almost felt like they're, they're the ghosts of these men it just felt ghostly it was the same thing when I went to Harper's Ferry which is where that uh, abolitionist John Brown tried to start a, an insurrection you go to this town and you walk around and you just feel something unsettling and and beyond like otherworldly but it's it, you would never know this if you just looked at the photos of these battlefields. But when you're there, and then when you're at the little round top, and and you you know for certain that those things are real, because you've seen them yourself. I think that we tend to have a bit of the way we interact online. We don't fully grasp or accept that what we're the the person whoever we're communicating with is real. It's just something different to actually meet them in person or to act to actually go to a place. When I saw the Magna Carta, there's several copies in the National Archives in DC has one of them. It was very emotional for me to look at this document that was written a thousand, almost a thousand years ago. And I had just seen a movie about the Magna Carta. And so it was, and it's part of my, my history, my family uh, mostly comes from England. So, and seeing the King's seal on it, that had been put there by King John and he had actually signed this document and all that stuff. So, but this was not an, like you were saying, it wasn't an itinerary. There was no book. I just wrote out what, where I wanted to go. And we also changed plans accordingly when we found that there was something that we enjoyed doing more than others, or there was just places that we weren't as interested in, but you can't, 
you can't pre-plan life experiences because some of the best moments you have in your life are going to be spontaneous and un- unexpected. So TJ, um, it was maybe about two months ago I did a podcast and it was a school district outside of Cleveland, Ohio, 22 miles outside of Cleveland, Ohio. The parents voted to not allow the eighth grade students to go to Washington, D.C. for the eighth grade class trip, which was the the annual class trip. And the reason was um, Washington, D.C., per the parents, was a terrorist target and our children will be at risk. So we're not going to, you know, school board, we're not going to allow this to happen. So the, the superintendent was pretty balanced, you know, and he said, I've taken my own family there. And, but of course, you know, there wasn't any reasoning with this group of parents. Um, so the, that trip never happened. Those kids, the experience that they had was seeing some DVDs of here's the, here's, you know, monument, uh, yeah. you know, monuments and, and, and some guide. So you have the positionality of whatever this guide is. I did a little more research into this and, and it's starting to, 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 um, become more, um, frequent and it's very sad. It's very disturbing to me. Yeah, um, definitely. Because what, what is actually happening, it's in its infancy, but this will grow is uh, companies saying, Hey, we can, you know, do your Washington DC field trip and you don't have to have the risk of going there. Now I, I study the risk and things like this and actually, in, in the podcast, I said the risk of taking the bus over to Washington, D.C. <laughs> was greater for a fatality in a normal, you know, vehicle accident, not that the bus would be targeted, was greater than actually being in Washington, D.C. And both of those were significantly greater than your, your, or, or you were more likely to be hit by lightning than either of those. <laughs> happening. So it, it was completely, you know, it, it was rhetoric, but um, here we have eighth grade, you know, so what, 13, 14 year olds being told the message that they're receiving is it's unsafe to do reconnaissance, like what, what, what you're talking about and, and the experience and being able to stand, um, you know, in Washington, D.C. Or, or let's say hypothetically, you know, somewhere else. Um, it, you don't do it. I mean, because it's, it's not safe. We can keep you safe here, which is a fallacy also and you're 22 miles outside of Cleveland. But um, I felt such a loss for those students, and then I also felt um, such a loss for the parents that that the parents didn't, I guess, know better or or find a balanced argument to that, or say, "Listen, maybe we, yeah. we are we're going to be more cautious, but let's still let's still do this." But no, it was a complete shutdown, and and so there's these companies that are starting to do these virtual tours, like all of the kids would go into a gymnasium and put on VR goggles and they'd have some VR guide and they kind of walk around and, and, and it's still in its infancy, but like here, you know, you're holding whatever. Yeah. Like you're holding the constitution and really, you know, it's the piece of paper that I have. Uh, so, so we're, we're, you know, you talk about dystopian, um, you know, views in society that scared me because I mean, I have, I have two daughters in school. I would be terrified if that's what my district wanted to do. Um, because we're not experiencing life in that case. We're doing almost a matrix view. So as I tell it to you, yeah. what, what's, what's your thought on something like that? My thought is it sends a really bad message. And I want to caveat with saying I'm a bachelor. I don't have kids. So the issue of child safety is not going to be as um, 
mean the same thing to me. I'm sure that if when I have kids, I'm going to be concerned about their safety. But one thing I, I feel like we're doing in this country that's very harmful is we're teaching kids that safety is more important than anything else. And even the slightest perception of any kind of danger, and it's not even rational. Like you were saying, it's riskier for them just be in the car driving. It, but people are not thinking through logically, and they're also allowing themselves to be controlled by other people who can just make threats or just make claims. And imagine right. the message that that would be sent if the school talked about it and somebody said, told the kids, we want you to be aware that there is there's this this threat or there's possible danger, but we believe that you seeing these things is worth it because that's how important they are to us as a society. It is that important for you to go see the Magna Carta. It is important for you to go see these documents because they didn't come without cost. And if right. we want to talk about risk, when people sign, people don't seem to understand this today. When the Declaration of Independence was signed, these men were likely signing their own death warrant. That's why John Hancock wrote his signature so large so that King George could read him without his glasses. And they were that's where the famous comment where somebody said, we're all hanged together, and Franklin said, yeah, we'll all hang separately. But they right. were going to be hanged if they were... Right. They would have all been executed uh, had they lost the war. And so that was the spirit of the War of Independence was that we could likely die a very horrific death for this, but we believe it is worth the, the risk. And that would be a great way to explain why these documents matter to these kids by allowing them to go and and giving them the choice. But it wasn't even, they weren't even allowed to make that decision for themselves. They're being forced to be safe by people who are not really thinking about even the, the odds of, of that. And so kids are not going it's going to affect their mentality and their mindset as they go out in life and become adults they're going to think they're not going to think about how can it be successful or how what's the best decision for me they're going to think which one's the safest right which one is if you if you just sit in your room and don't do anything yeah you'll be safe but is that really what life is about the people who've lived the most fulfilling lives, how many of them would say that they lived a safe life as opposed to living an adventurous life? I always think, I mentioned on my podcast, Jack London, uh, he's, for me, the kind of writer in some ways, in a lot of ways I want to be like, because he didn't just write about stuff. He lived a very adventurous life. He was lived out in the, uh, the Yukon, or the, the Klondike and which is not a very safe area. He wrote stories about men freezing to death because they couldn't, build a fire in the middle of the the forest when it's below zero. He obviously knew that life, but that's what makes life interesting is when you go outside of that. So uh, I, the, I don't know what these virtual tours look like. I know that they're not going to fascinate kids as much as possible because it's just another example of them seeing something that's a replica and it will never replace the authentic document. Right. I, I I think kids will be be bored. I mean, and and I, yeah. I mean, the way that you that you frame that was was exactly what needed to be conveyed. Um, and and the sad part is, I'm not sure that it would have made, unfortunately, you know, a difference to the to the parents who already had their mind made up of, of nope, you know, Washington D.C. is a terrorist <laughs> target, and and we're just we're not going to I, take risk. I do want to add, I I made a comment on my Facebook page if people want to go. It's uh, facebook.com slash TJ Martinell. I had read an article talking about how London was now considered less safe than New York City. 
going back to my trip to London or to the British Isles, I spent a week in London. I went out and I was granted I was in the central part of the town, but at no point did I ever feel unsafe. I, and I'm a pretty big guy, but at the same time, there, I didn't see any gangs. There was no we there was nothing that made me believe that a crime was going on or imminent and i was out late at night several nights so people also need to think about where are you going in a city because these cities are not small they're huge cities so people right. say well washington dc is not safe well which part of washington dc are you going to are you going to the the touristy areas are you going to the capital there's obviously and they may say well terrorist attacks can occur anywhere well at some point you if if you if you're going to make a that kind of a life choice, just know you're going to be full of regret on your deathbed. That, right. That's what, that's the choice that you are going to have to make. And if you think that's that important, but people want to have it both ways. They want to have a fulfilling life without any risk. Well, that's not, that, that's not how life works. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, you know, we get into the heuristics of this and people don't want to hear that's something, um, as a safety professional and it's, it, it really has, it's challenged me, um, I, I guess more than I expected just in the last year with the, um, Las Vegas shooting and then the Parkland school shooting. Um, I was contacted by, by, you know, um, national media as a safety expert and then would, would produce, you know, one page that would be, here's a citation of this, 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 and this. And then also do a 20, 30 minute interview. And of course, you know, have some snippets pulled out that weave together very well into largely a narrative, which was we need to fortify schools with <laughs> guards and things. And, and I'm like, well, that's not exactly, you know, again, I understand how this gets taken out of context. Um, but when I was a school administrator it, and Sandy Hook, um, the Sandy Hook massacre happened in December 2012. Uh, at least 80% of the feedback from people in the community, including, you know, parents mostly, but, and we're talking hundreds of emails and, and, and letters and, but it was fortify the schools. We want bulletproof glass. We want, you know, guards at the doors and all these things. And, and that is, it's frightening because one, there isn't a profile of a shooter or a mass shooter or a school shooter and all you're doing is creating a sense of a hardened target well the reality is as soon as the students walk outside or walk on a playground or if they're at a mall or a little league game and the thing is again these things are very rare they're horrific they're they're reported um and i also you know, I, I did some research just recently into the number of, of suicides, for example, on the new bridge um, adjacent to Hoover Dam, yeah. and and that's become a, a you know pretty frequent destination for people seeking to complete suicide just as a Golden Gate. Um, but you know, with with Golden Gate, it was stop reporting on it, and and also now that's that's been the the decision that was made on this bridge next to Hoover Dam, and. I've I've seen movement of you know let's not have as much media coverage on these types of events because I I, I also witness um, you know it, it does become copycat event it, it becomes I, I want to be in the limelight and the Parkland shooter um, emulated Klebold and and Harris and yeah. So, it- yeah. This actually occurred back in the early 1900s in Japan, where 
these couples were throwing themselves into a volcano and the press was being so lurid and melodramatic that it inspired other people to do it and it was it was one of the most bizarre stories i've ever read it was in this book of really weird history facts but the the press was basically blamed for for playing them up to where other people wanted to do it for reasons i can't possibly imagine but yeah it this is that phenomenon is not a new one of uh, having media highlighting something and then calling attention to it to other people who might have otherwise not thought of it thank you for tuning in to the safety doc podcast with the nation's leading safety expert dr david perodin Author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. So as a so as a journalist, um, how does that impact what what you see around you with, with colleagues? Um, is there more of a, a pause before reporting something um, that, that has to do with, with, you know, let's say it is um, a mass shooting or, you know, something to that effect of, yeah. is this going to, or is it, no, we have to report this? And I don't know. In, so I work right now in the news site that covers industry mainly so we don't cover these thankfully i don't have to really deal with those i do know though local journalism is not infected with the same kind of stuff we see with national journalism because if you write something that causes harm to the community the people live across the street city halls just down the down the block and people can come and write in the newsroom and complain about stuff whereas you know cnn they've got the secure headquarters or, or wherever it is and you you show up to some area that you've never been to you write a story and then you leave and if there's damage done well you know it's they're three thousand miles away and it would have to be legally an issue for before they'll actually care about it so i think local journalism are people are a little bit more cognizant of it not only that but a lot of the reporters if they live in the town they know the people that they're writing about right so they they're thinking how is this going to come across but it was definitely something that i was thinking about after sandy hook when I, I took a step back and was asking myself you know how how can we be more responsible with what we're doing because it's the same thing with so many of our rights we have a lot of power but it also comes with as the saying goes with responsibility that we we need to exercise those rights in a an appropriate manner and just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something i actually covered a case there's the links to it in my on my website on my reporting portfolio i covered a high school hazing scandal that occurred and it was definitely something where we had to be thinking about the community and what do we because we got a, a very thick police 
case documents and had a lot of material, but we just felt like there was a lot of stuff that people did not need to know about. And we wanted to protect, obviously, people who were innocent, but it's a community, it's a still a small enough city where people are going to know, even if you don't say their name, they're going to know what's going on. So it, it's definitely a, a topic that I feel like needs to be discussed more and by people who are willing to actually have that conversation. So that, to me, that's responsible journalism. And, and in no way, um, you know, for, for the listeners, um, you know, I, I am, am not um, trying to take this in an anti-journalism type perspective because I, I don't journalism is is a means and I think what we've we've lost though is people are taking the first bit of information and they're just going with it and they're vetting it and and just like the trail just like you know when, when it, it snows and it's like here's my here's the trail here I'm going for it and it's that that first piece of information um, what was it October 31st um, Halloween on ni- 1938 I believe Orson Welles the War of the Worlds broadcast, <laughs> and it was amazing. Also, did a podcast on that um, of the people who would, when they heard that, you know, the panic. But it there was there was no vetting. There was no um, trying to verify. Um, I, I mean, some people did this, but other other people just went with it. And not only the fact that um, it wasn't accurate, but then they they built their own s- scaffolding. Um, reports like a farmer would say I, I see this right now like i actually was outside and i saw this and there's footprint or the 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 pod prints are in my field and it was um a princeton university professor went out with um a group of of i think it was, it was in a journalism class I, I could be mistaken though uh, it might have been sociology and they went out a day later and they interviewed a lot of people while this was still fresh and a number of people stood with their stories, even though it, by that time it, it had come out and said, no, this was just, you know, a, this was a radio performance. But a, a university professor stood by a story, you know, police officers stood by their story that they had visually confirmed <laughs> these things. Um, and, and again, I talked about my, I talked earlier about my aunt and my, a couple of months ago, um, she doesn't live too far from where um, Air Force fighters uh, periodically will do flyovers. And there was a sonic boom, um, and everything in the house shook, and actually a picture fell down. And then um, she said her neighbors went outside, and the first thing she did is she went over to the radio and turned it on, and the local radio, and they said, there was a sonic boom that was an aircraft. There wasn't an explosion or anything like that. And there's going to be another one, so anticipate it. But she said, you know, that, so that was her method to validate but she said her neighbors were thinking there was an explosion at the factory, the big factory in town, or that something had crashed or whatever. Weren't necessarily thinking like terrorism or that because this wasn't right. an area, but but had had come to these conclusions instead of 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 seeking out to validate, and then they they just built off of their own stories. Um, so I, I want to take us in a, a little bit of a different direction. This has been fascinating, TJ. Um, so. You you talked about working close to the Seattle Seahawks um, football stadium. Um, yeah, <laughs> and I can just imagine uh, because I, I know when they built that not too long ago, maybe a decade ago or whatever, it was designed to be the loudest football stadium in the NFL. The way that they, you know, I, I don't know the way that that it was built, so it would register the highest decibels when the. <laughs> um, and I, and I attended. Green Bay Packer home games in the 80s and 90s. And actually, in the 90s, I think I was at every home game. 
Um, and then lost interest, frankly, lost interest after that. And and don't even watch the games on Sunday. Not, I'm not anti-team. It's just, you know. Um, but it was something my brother and I, you know, we had we had gone to games. Um, but I, you talked about this in, in your podcast of, of how people, you know, just trying to make sense out of these, these people who are willing now to spend on, you know, a ticket, a hundred, two hundred dollars, you know, they, they buy the, the team jacket and they, they have all of these investments that they put into going to this game and also kind of thinking that, you know, they have a connection to the team. Well, the team has no idea who you are. The players have no idea who you are. Nothing, <laughs> right. and and it has become un, unbelievable. I mean, um, I, I want to go in, in a little bit after I get your take on your experiences with that. But um, you know, now these stadiums are billions of dollars, and and you have these high definition, you know, eighty foot replay boards and. And all these, what they call fan amenities, you know, we have to do this to keep the fans interested. I'm thinking, well, no, I mean, the fans want to come see a great game. I don't, I don't care if the game is out in the hayfield. I mean, <laughs> it's a great game between talented teams, you know. Um, so, but no, it is, it's the, the quote unquote fan experience. And, and I have ticket stubs um, that literally, you know, it's like $22 for a row, you know, 42 seat eight. And that was like my, you know, the season. I mean, that would, that would be everything. So, um, but tell me, I guess, what's your thought about that? And and maybe what's, what's, um, soured you on this, this movement toward these, these massive, I guess, palaces to sports and, and, and just how, I guess, even, even to build off of that, we just got done with the Olympics and I was reading how much were paid for TV rights for the Olympics. And, and then also, of course, they do the little um, documentaries of, you know, like here's where the Olympics is, you know, in so- Sochi and, and all these other places, which now are completely abandoned and nobody takes. I mean, once the Olympics are gone, these places are left to rot. Right. Just a waste of resources and, and money. But so um, I'll be honest. I mean, I, I don't know many people your age who are not really diehard full committed to some type of either college team or professional team so what's that experience been like for you it's interesting because i grew up being a diehard utah jazz fan my my mother was born and raised in salt lake city and so i was getting a lot of hand-me-downs from her family of these jazz but then i got really hooked on carl and john stockton who actually went went to college in uh, the same area as I, not the same college, but same area. But I like the way that they work together to make the team do really well because John Stockton would steal the ball and get it to Carmelo and then he'd go in for the, the, the delivery, which is why he was called the mailman. So yeah. I really followed them until they lost in that, tra- that tragic, uh, I think it was 96 or 97, but the Michael Jordan managed to pull off that that three-pointer, I think, I at the buzzer. Yep. Yeah, and so after that, I just threw my hands up because that was the second time that they had lost. And I, I've i always been more of an action-oriented person. I, I've been on, I was on sports teams. I was always doing stuff. And I, I enjoyed watching sports, but for the sake of watching the game, I wasn't really caught up too much in the, really just the culture, the sports culture. And... I was also, I think, when I got in high school, I did running. So running is not a very, it's not a spectator sport. (laughs) 
there's not as many, not right. nearly as many people watching a cross country runner. And I guess that gravitates people, people are gravitated towards that who are about performance and achievement and not necessarily on how many people are going to be watching you. But I really got kind of turned off of it because I was seeing people who I knew or around me who were really into a team, but they weren't doing stuff in their own life. If, for example, I know a lot of men who are into football watching it, but if we wanted to go play football, they wouldn't be so enthusiastic about it. I, if anybody wants to go have a turkey bowl, I'm down for it. Right. And I'd love to play football, but I'm not going to sit there and, and have it consume so much of my time and energy, especially when I have no control over it. Like, I guess I would say, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody here, but the fantasy football leagues to me is a very odd thing. I've never understood it because it's guys watching a game and then complaining about how their player right. didn't perform. And I'm thinking, they have no idea right. who you are. You didn't hire them. And right. it's it's sort of like a, a considered to be a more masculine version of a one of those card games or a, a I don't know. It, but it, yeah, when I was working at in Seattle, downtown Seattle, across from the stadium, that was the year that they won, they won the Super Bowl. And they didn't just win that game. They completely uh, trounced the, the Broncos. Right. And so there was that huge parade when they came back. It was literally something out of one of those, those 1950s Bible films where they got the Roman, the Roman parade in Rome or whatever, like from Ben-Hur. And I was... I was just working. I, I peeked out of the window to see what the commotion was. My biggest interest in it was figuring out how it was going to affect my traffic getting home. Right. right. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of the workers asked for permission to go down and actually be there rather than doing work. And if they want to do that, that's fine. It's just I want to be put my interest in things that I have control over. And I feel like a lot of people who are really into sports, and they're also into a team, but what happens when the team the players go away. I was really into the Mariners back when they were winning 116 games. Jay Buhner, who was a, one of their hitters, his kids went to my private school, and I actually did, who's on first, uh, did a performance of that for him and got him to sign a bunch of stuff. So that was kind of cool. But it, I I also liked watching them because they were such a good team. You saw, you were seeing a, an, a almost 21st century version of the 1927 Yankees, Murderer's Row, except it was in Seattle, and they yeah. were doing really well. And then after that season, they just have never really quite recovered. So for me, for sports, it's a question of, are you watching the game to to witness people do really well at, at something and achieve uh, victory, or are you watching it almost for the soap opera that it, that it can become? And you're more interested in the like the the, the celebrity gossip of these players that I see a lot of people doing and then where you invest your emotions I think people should be investing their emotions not in someone who doesn't know them has no idea who they are and may not actually like them if they met them in person (laughs) and we see the same thing we see the same thing with you know Hollywood celebrities people are really into that stuff and I get it when you're young you get really excited about something I was really into James Bond when I was a kid but I'm not obsessed with what Sean Connery is doing with his life right now or something like that. Yeah. Um. I so when I attended games at Lambeau Field, and Lambeau Field has, has undergone massive renovations and updates and expansions since then. But but I mean, it wasn't much different than when they had the Ice Bowl in '67. I mean, the stadium was virtually the same. Um, and I remember very 
clearly, you know, that they had the analog or not. Well, I mean, they had digital scoreboards, but um, I mean, well, it was the lights and it had the little relays because we the one scoreboard wasn't too far in back of us. Every time it would tick down, you could hear that the relays clicking. Um, and, and so basically, you know, it gave you the home score, the you know, opponent score in, in yardage, passing yards, rushing. And that was it. I mean, that was it. There was nothing. There was, there was, there wasn't a jumbotron, um, you know, and, and so it was just the score. Um, and you didn't have all of these sky boxes. Um, and I remember going into a game and we'd go early and you could walk up toward the field, the, the fence, you know, that went around and, and they also had, remember like, you know, gym class underneath the basketball hoops, they had oh, those yeah. mats in case you run into them. Well, they, they had mats <laughs> all the way around the stadium on the inside in case the players would overrun. And, and none of the mats matched. I mean, like, none of, <laughs> every, every, every color was a different shade of green. I mean, it was like this bad St. Patrick's Day nightmare. And that was something, too. I mean, I'm like, this is an NFL team and, you know, these these mats. But it was, but you know, again, it was, and the field was great for, like, the first two home games. And then after that, you know, like, the grass started to die because they didn't have those special ultraviolet grow lights that they have now. Um, so it was, you know, so then basically it was playing out on sand and mud and they would just paint it. But I remember one of the, the coolest things we, we showed up for, you know, a, a season and... They had across from us um, a scoreboard, and or, okay, so let me. If you have a garage door, just a single garage door, single car, and and it has like four panels on it. So this thing was basically the size of one panel, like two foot high by maybe eight feet wide. And the only purpose of this was to give the out of town scores for the games. So it might say like N O S F, like New Orleans at San Francisco, and then it would give the score um you know 21 7 and then the the period would be one two three four and if it was overtime it would become a zero but there was no ot i mean it was just and we were fascinated by that we were like people around us are like look at this there's out of town scores right now like this this is incredible and um i was and we're walking back um and we and you left the truck um unlocked um out in the parking lot and and you know, walking back and I'm like, that is, that's amazing. You know, and I'm thinking, you know, and something like that today in yeah. a high school gym wouldn't be acceptable. I mean, but it, and, and now, you know, they have $14 million in high definition, like 4k <laughs> replay boards that right. show all of this stuff. And, and, you know, I mean, and I also remember we were walking, we were up and we were watching the players kind of warm up and some guy pulls out a knife which is has a serrated edge on, on the back of it and the things like two foot long he pulls it out of this holster and he's cutting uh duct tape and he's he's putting up this big sign you know like go packers and mm-hmm. and uh security comes up to him and all they say is like you know put the knife away right. they didn't they didn't say you reject <laughs> it they didn't tackle the guy but i remember like looking over and he pulls out this big knife that you know he just said walked in because i mean and he didn't worry about things back then but um but i do remember how um how exciting it was to watch the games and if, if somebody got 
injured, you didn't know. You you didn't immediately have everybody checking their phone, and you had like one yeah. person three seats ahead that <laughs> that had headphones that had the little, um, uh, you know, pull out the the antenna that would that would come out, and we'd we'd be waiting for that guy to give an update, and then he'd turn around and be like, oh, I just I just heard on uh, the radio that, uh, you know, they they just took this guy in for like an an X-ray, it could be an ankle injury, and then it's like, whoa, like nobody knew that that just went around, um, but that was such such an organic experience and yeah i i i loved it and we when and, and you know we talk about rituals um you know a, a ritual we had is we did always stop at a ponderosa on the way home in, in this one town and we always tried to prank each other it was my brother and kind of his friends um you know when we went up if you went to the salad bar you came back you know you might find you know your fork bent in half or something like that or i don't know but but it was always just kind of a good ribbing type thing that always went along with this that we had um, at the end. But and and two, it would be um, you get to a break, a commercial break, and instead of like all of these ads up on an, on on the boards like they have now, there'd be some guy who'd go out there and he'd have a frisbee dog and he'd he'd be whipping frisbees out on the field and his dog would be jumping up and catching them and everybody would be clapping and it'd be great. Yeah, and that's gone, you know, and and I don't. And I, I went to one game with all of the new stuff, and it's like it just overloaded me, and I just felt, nope, not for me. I just, it just, I was turned off by it, completely turned off by it. So, yeah, you know, um, I, I, I had mentioned this. Uh, I, are you a video gamer? Do you play video games? <laughs> it's funny you should say that because my brother just gave me uh, one of his spare Xbox Ones. And it's the first time I've had a. I got we had the Xbox when Halo first came out, but I really haven't played video games. I was into Call of Duty, but I never had one. I was really into playing that online stuff in college, and then there was this one day after four hours of playing, I got up and just thought to myself, "What exactly have I accomplished in this last four hours? I've killed about I've killed about 300 Nazis, but I haven't really accomplished anything in life." So I just decided. Every now and then I'll I'll play stuff, but I've never been not I'm not updated on a lot of the stuff that's going on now. I was in I was big into it when I was a kid. I was into Zelda and, and all that other stuff, and I followed that stuff religiously. But it just you can only have so many hobbies when that stuff's expensive, especially when I mean back then back then new games were sixty dollars, which right. for a kid and you're trying to afford that, you're you're it's like your whole. <laughs> Your whole month or, or two of uh, of work errands or whatever allowance, whatever they give kids. But I'm the Call of Duty games are pretty much the only ones I've been following. So you know, when I I was in college, uh, we would play games. It was it was Sega back then, and actually, <laughs> uh, so we did the sports game like Sega football and, and basketball and, and the original and, Madden. Yeah, yeah, I, I have <laughs> the original Madden and. And we would write down, uh, my roommates and I, um, we, we kept logs of every game, all of the statistics. So it'd be like, don't, 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 don't clear the screen yet, Craig. Like I, I didn't get down like the yardage and the half and all of this. And, and we kept these immaculate, like, you know, documents of every game that we ever played. Um, yeah. And, but it, at the same time, I mean, we would play, but then we did other things. Like we were never, um, addicted to the, the game. I mean, the TV was off a lot of times. We were out. We played, you know, all the intramural sports. 
we had a field next to us, you know, so we would we would be out throwing the football or, or doing whatever, biking, bike trail, stuff like that. So I wanted to bring up and, and get your get your thought on this because I've been reading to the average um, video game player is now 34. <laughs> and the amount of time that's being spent playing video games is is drastically increasing through all um, all ages, including elderly in nursing homes. Um, now, of course, the plus side on that, and I interviewed Sean Dickers, um, who has studied and actually um, teaches courses in video games at Bethel um, University. But you know, it. it so what the effect is in a nursing home is increasing, you know, reflexes and, and reaction time and things like that can also be addictive and of course passing time. But, um, you know, but if you're talking about somebody who is 34, 30 years old or whatever, um, even younger, and you are just spending hours upon hours upon hours playing games, you know, I just, I, it is one, it's you're not accomplishing anything real. I mean, everything that you're accomplishing is is virtual. You're not improving your body. You're not doing reconnaissance. Um, but so another part that's that I think is very disturbing. Ten years ago, video games were designed to be captivating because of the quality of the game. And I listened to a couple podcasts with uh, folks that had defected out of the game industry, designers. And they said, oh, no, it's different right now. Like, you know, the companies are hiring psychologists, psychiatrists, um, sociologists, and and they are designing games to specifically become addictive and to play on people's emotions and to hook them in. And the the example is push notifications. Like, hey, you haven't played um, for 12 hours and (sighs) your dragon is dying. So you have to go in right now and play, but if you don't, I mean, you can also do a quick PayPal of five dollars, and you know we'll take care of, of your course, dragon. Of course, of course. And but it's getting to the point where it's getting very, um, very deep. I mean, and people are are feeling this tie, especially in tribal type games, where they they feel that either they have this this genuine um, group that they're working with in some kind of, of multiplayer game. Um, I listened yeah. to one player who was was driving somewhere and couldn't get to his, I don't know, his his home or wherever he was going to play and was so panicked, actually pulled over at like a, a restaurant or something um, and didn't have cell service. That was part of the deal was was somewhere yeah. where there wasn't what was was sketchy cell service and, and like begged to use a landline so you could like call somebody so they could go in and make a post and say oh like scott's not going to be able to be in tonight because he's whatever and i'm thinking oh my god like this is freaky and but this whole push notification um i think goes to this this building this external sense of validation and when we you know so we're talking a lot about agency and purpose but you are being now externally purposed externally motivated and rewarded by something which is an algorithm and it it again it's frightening um to me because it is it, it's being done in a way that that's very very targeted and so where does this i mean this is video games but this could easily become into social media it's already done you know i guess in social media to some extent with with updates um and I worked with a, a young man recently who became a, so addicted to push notifications that he needed to turn over his phone at night 
to um, adults and he did this willingly yeah. but he said I can't I'm not I can't sleep I'm just like waiting and I'm checking everything that's coming through you got a new email or there's a new you know post on Facebook or whatever and and recognized it and um, but the push notifications I think are very very frightening to me um, yeah so give me your give me your thoughts because I, I think this fits into with 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 your your framework for your writing yeah that is definitely I think when you ha- are logged in on your phones to different social media. I was experienced this, this myself where I was constantly getting notifications from Facebook or from other apps where it felt like I needed to respond or was just distracting me when I was trying to work on something. And then I also had a bit of this epiphany and it was a couple of weeks ago where I just realized what exactly am I accomplishing with what's going on? Cause it, a lot of it was just conversations I was having online discussions or just posting and and all that and a lot of it wasn't really going anywhere it wasn't helping me provide the kind of practical knowledge for example they're not going to teach me how to do the kind of stuff that say aaron clary's book bachelor pad economics i that was a more productive three-hour use of my time reading through that book than you know talking to all these people online about stuff that's not going to teach me the knowledge to get to where i want to go and i finally just cut off all notifications on on these different apps and I am very conscientious about logging in on them I have to use them for for some of them for work um, related purposes but it causes us to not do stuff we're sitting around just waiting for somebody to do something to get that notification so then we can respond and I, that's partly why I've I don't have internet at my house. I use my my phone's mobile data for for internet, but I don't have internet, so I don't have cable. I don't have Netflix, and one of the reasons is it becomes it can it can consume you. I knew a a, a call not a colleague um somebody I knew in college who was addicted to watching YouTube videos. He would just watch all these stupid videos. I mean, they're funny, but they're stupid videos. And he would just watch them over and, and for hours and hours and hours on end. And then you've got people who are like with video games, it just makes me kind of glad I never really got into that. I, I kind of got right. out what I right. did. And when you realize it's affecting you, and I was actually having the same problem where I would go to bed at night and I would just sit there with my phone, just looking at Twitter feeds, seeing what was going on in the world. What's It's so much, we have so much access to so much information we can't handle. We get overwhelmed. I think the other problem is we also get a false perception of reality because we only get so much information out of all that's out there, but it's going to shape the way we view the world, the way we view people. And I realized that kind of like with your um, your aunt or, or trying to confirm something happened in real life with what they're seeing on, on TV or whatever, did this really happen? Or when Orson Welles was doing that radio broadcast, people should have just looked outside their window <laughs> and not, right. not seeing no UFO. So again, all these things can be useful. You just have to be disciplined in how you use them. It's like any other uh, product you have or service that you use. And But I, I'm seeing it, you go everywhere and people don't look at each other interact I actually went to when I was in Britain I, I was on the coast in Dover and I went into a pub that specifically had a sign that said no cell phones allowed and they had chairs all in a circle so you would sit down and you you had to talk to people because you couldn't use your phone and you're looking across at somebody else so I had all these great conversations with these people in this 
in, in this English town because they were very conscientious about ensuring that people are going to go in there. The whole point of a public house is to be social and to socially interact, not to just stare at your phone. And I know people will go back and say, well, you know, 70 years ago it was the newspaper, people were reading the newspaper. Yes, that's because humans don't change, just the, the technology that we use to get addicted right. to. Um, but yeah, I've, yeah, I'm going to the video game thing of, of people being 34. I think it's because they're probably the first generation that's gone through their entire lives with having actual video games that are separate from other types of uses. Video games were kind of a, a novelty. You had the arcades or whatever. But in my generation, the older millennials, they've grown up with a Nintendo. Nintendo has always been around right. for the entire time. So it's part of their childhood memory to to have this stuff in them but i also can't say i i'm not a very tip i'm not a i'm an atypical millennial in that sense i i have video game consoles in my house but i rarely if ever use them yeah i i don't know where where that's going to go especially with with vr um but it does bring up this this whole um concern i i i have with extrinsic um validation and controlling and again we always have to realize you know it's the positionality of whoever's creating that game you know that you are you know that you are being led down certain paths but those choices have been predetermined by the makers of the game so your your control in these you know situations is is really very limited um but so one of the things you know that video games are based off of is this whole badge system, or you know, very quickly you can earn you know like, quote unquote, a badge or or, or you know some accolade, and then it builds upon that, and and that's very specifically done to keep you engaged in the game, and yet these things mean nothing in reality. Yeah. I mean, they yeah. don't, but they're not transferable. Um, so you were talking about you you get to the top of a mountain or complete a hike bring out your pipe and and we'll smoke your pipe we'll take in what's around you and i see that obviously as a, as a ritual and i want you to, to tell me about that and before you tell me about it too there was um i felt frustration when i listened to the one podcast of the the young man who came up and it was a misty day or or a little bit cloudy yeah. and, and he get he he's up there with you and and instead of um, appreciating what's around him, um, because you know I will like when I, I I run most nights and I run when it rains and I run when it's ten below and it doesn't matter that you know I and I find as much pleasure in rainy nights running um, as I it, and if it's ten below as I do if it's you know seventy degrees and and something like that, um, but but he gets up there and he's like oh what a waste. I can't see anything. So, you know, it, and I'm like, Oh, like, no, it isn't it. It's awesome because yeah, you're, it, it's going even just doing that or just like the humidity in the hair in the air maybe brings out a little more of the earthiness. If you yeah. take the time to close your eyes and smell, and I'm, I'm just, as you're telling that I'm feeling the same frustration or, or, or paralleling some frustration. I think you were conveying in that podcast of no, like, you know, it's not that you get there and it's just boom it's like it unfolds you take it in and and he didn't allow that immediately to happen so tell me tell me about i guess your hiking and how rituals are a part of that 
and and how they've grown yeah so i i started doing hiking i'd done hiking in boy scouts when i was a kid and i really didn't do that during college and then after college and then there was a one point when i just decided i hadn't done hiking i needed to go out and do that and there was all these i lived in a town that was right next to the mountains so it seemed like i needed to go enjoy that and take advantage of it and so i would go hiking and I also was getting into smoking tobacco pipes. Um, somebody had given me one for as a Christmas gift, so I was learning more about how to use it. Well, the thing is you can't really use it in your house, and you can't use it e- elsewhere because it'll obviously bring up smell. You've got to change your clothes afterwards. So there's not a lot of environments, maybe in a very nice social thing where it's just acceptable to have, bring out cigars or whatever. So hiking seemed the an ideal place to do that so we'd go hiking i'd get up to the top of the mountain and then i'd take out the pipe and just sit there and and work on uh learning how to smoke it properly because it is an art (laughs) for some people who don't know uh, when learning it's not like they have in the movies with sherlock holmes where he just pulls out a match lights his pipe and then just starts smoking no that's like the first step of several to actually getting it to to work properly and it wasn't intentional it just it it went together but then it became a ritual over time to where it was important for me to do that because it was sort of a for me a celebration of a completion of a hike and it invited itself for me to just sit there and look enjoy the view to even when there wasn't a actual view of of the area there's still a place that you can still see around you and even if you can't then you can just imagine what the place looks like with with uh with a clear sky and then just think about stuff. Think about you know the fact that you get to go out into the woods. There are people, I was re- mentioning this on my podcast, there's people in this country who have never seen a mountain. And to me, growing up in the Cascades, living in the Cascades, it sounds like a death um, sentence of some kind of the soul to not be able to go see the, the kind of things that I've seen. And um, people who are interested can go to my Instagram account. It's private, but I let people in. I just... It, want to control that um, instagram.com slash tj martinell i have a lot of the photos that i've taken of these hikes and even when they the weather wasn't that great i still got some fantastic scenes of just stuff or it looks like something out of lord of the rings like the misty mountains oh, or right, right. just whatever so you can always enjoy it you just have to be willing to accept things as they are and thankfully the area i live in even when it rains it still looks nice compared to other areas where it's you know, when it's gray and cloudy, it just looks a little uh, depressing. One of the things when I when I run is I, I do um, what I call appreciations, or it, it, I would I would say it's a ritual. Um, I try to find stars. Hopefully, if it's a you know starry night, if not, I have to substitute you know other <laughs> things. But um, and and I, I try to relate that to either people who have been significant in my life, you know, who have, who have passed or else maybe um, events that I've completed, um, you know, personally in, in my life. But um, as, I, as I go through, the first thing I do is I just say out loud, you know, I'm thankful I'm able to do this. I'm, I, I'm thankful I'm able to be out here running tonight. And, and that's the first thing. And then I'm thankful that I'm healthy and I'm thankful that my family's healthy and, and going through and the value in that is, is immense. Um, because, uh, you know, it's, I, I, I just don't hear that a lot. And, and, I, and I have right. to say, I mean, straight up, 
I was I was addicted to social media. I mean, four or five years ago, and we, as a family, deleted you know Facebook, everything. The only thing we have is Twitter, and then my safety PhD dot com website, which largely is just my blog. Um, but we don't have social media, um, and you know it's funny because a friend of mine got out of the Navy and he said, I had a really hard time trying to find you because you're like nowhere out there. Like I can't find <laughs> you on Facebook and you know, like, so what's your Facebook? I'm like, dude, I haven't been on Facebook like in four or five years. So I'm not in you know, you're on this, you on this. I'm like, no, I'm not, you know, and, and just for us, I mean, I just, I, I was finding it wasn't serving, it was, it was consuming a lot of time and it was probably also consuming time that I could have been out running or I could have been out biking. But um, I, have, I have a ritual, and then I want to get your thought on, on what, what the difference between a ritual and a routine is. But I got into biking big time and would and will bike 70, 80 miles. Um, maybe, I mean, for me, that's a lot. When I was biking, maybe wow. four or five miles, and I was out of shape and, and just preoccupied by other things. But, I mean, I focus on my, my bike treks. And um, I stop at a, a cemetery that is, um, there isn't a, uh, church uh, there anymore and it's from probably you know like the late 1800s the, the stones um, so I did some research on it and it was it was I it's out in the middle of nowhere it's kind of like halfway though it's this point where I can bike up and it's just quiet there's a large field in front of it and yeah. I can just walk through and I can look at the different gravestones and then kind of think you know like you know well here's somebody who fought in World War one and it has the little um, you know, insignia and, and, and just trying to picture what it was like during those times. And, and, and then I can speak out loud. I mean, there aren't any other people around and, and just, you know, um, it is, it is amazing to do that and to, to, to have that. I, I, I don't know if it's, if it's relational or if there's, um, I, I don't know exactly what it is. Um, but there is one, there is one gravestone, um, of a, it's more recent and it's, it's a, it was a boy with, um, cerebral palsy who died at age 10. It's the, most of the gravestones are very, you know, very much in the 1880s, but, um, I kind of tend to this stone. I did, a, he has his, his pictures on there and I've, I've looked up the, um, you know, the death notice. Um, and I didn't know this boy at all, but I, I will tend to the stone a little bit if some things have been knocked down, some, some of the flowers or winds yeah. or you know, whatever. And just say a little prayer and just and just move on. Um, and to me, that is that's a ritual. Like I, I feel like I've accomplished something with introspection of, of putting myself in the thoughts, recognizing the people that have gone before me, the things, the contributions they've made. You know, of like saying things like I appreciate the work that you've done, and you know, because now the fields around the community and any of the buildings and just the the, the work and um, if you you know in your time in the service and things like that and um it's it's also strange because as i was looking up the cemetery it's like oh yeah it's like the second most haunted cemetery in wisconsin I was like, what i've never <laughs> as i was about to say you were saying it was on top of a hill all by itself and i was like this is something right out of a vincent price horror film yeah it, it, so there's like you know all these these you know ghosts people who who set up there and do the evps i i never have felt anything like 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 yeah. that but i do feel a very connectedness and um, it is it is very powerful for me, but I think people when we talk about when we talk about rituals, people 
think about routines and they're like, oh yeah, my ritual is I get up in the morning and then I, you know, make my coffee and then I, you know, get the radio. Um, so I know the forecast and what to dress. And then, you know, I do this and I'm like, whoa, like that's not ritual. That's routine. That's what we call like your Taurus or everyday kind of like what you do, like getting in your car and starting your car and driving to work is not a ritual. Um, so I think people conflate what is truly a ritual versus like a routine. And even the Harvard Business Review article kind of gets a little fuzzy in that. They lose their, their yeah. footing a little bit. So tell me what, how you would separate the two. I would say that routine is something that we do as part of our everyday lives, making your bed, brushing your teeth, doing your laundry. Uh, none of that is special or notable unless you're not a very cleanly, not, not very cleanly person, but just stuff that you do every day and it's just part of who you are. That's routine. It, you know, like what kind of, for example, routine for me, I tend, I've just for breakfast, I eat eggs. That's my routine, but that's not a ritual. Uh, a ritual is when you're trying to separate something and it can't, it could have originally been a routine, but it's something that you set apart to make it special or to note that it is different from everything else. And a ritual that came to mind when I was thinking about this was in my family for years, we went on the day after Thanksgiving, we would go to a Christmas tree farm in the central part of the state where I now live. And we would go chop down a Christmas tree and we would bring it home and we would have breakfast at a certain restaurant uh, on our way there. And then we would take all of our Christmas stuff from the attic and we'd bring it down and we would decorate the house that weekend. So that was for years the tradition. And then this year I had my folks over for Thanksgiving at my house. We went in the middle of the National Forest and chopped down a, a, a natural tree that had not been in a farm and brought that back. So that's going to be my ritual from now on that I have my own house. So that's different from a routine because you don't do that every single day. And it's making it, you could easily have just gone to a hardware store and bought a tree out of a, a lot. And that maybe would have been a little bit more of a routine, even though it's, it is a part of the holidays, but it's not that big of a deal. You just go grab a tree, right. give them the guy the money and then go home. And so, um, it's when you're the, the rituals don't aren't religious in nature. I think that's important. They're spiritual but not religious. Religion does tend to um, make a nice home for rituals. So if you if in a lot of traditional churches, they're going to have or, or religions, they're going to have a lot of rituals, but they're not routine. They doing the sacraments or like a I would say a baptism uh, for a lot of. Uh, for certain denominations, they do infant baptism. Well, that's not a routine. That's a ritual. Right, <laughs> it's right. a ceremony and things like that. One example I wanted to say, so I live in a Bavarian tourist town called Leavenworth. Okay. So if you go, it, it looks in a lot of ways just like it geographically as well. And during the Christmas season, they have the light, the town and all the trees around the main part of town turn on and the, the lights, just a lot of Christmas light stuff it's at the same time every single day but on the weekends in december they have a christmas lighting ceremony where they have a ceremony prior to the lights going on and we will have tens of thousands of people come here oh, wow. to experience this and <laughs> i have to now mark those days off of my calendar to not leave my house because the traffic it's a one lane it's two lanes it's a highway but there's there's only one lane going each way so traffic gets really crazy but it's all because they want to come there for a ritual 
to want a, a ritual that is made for something that happens every single day of the week. And they even have to tell people that now. If you want to come see it and you can't make it, you can come during the week or you can come on another day. They do – they turn the lights on until uh, Valentine's Day. But that's – I think shows why people think – take ritual important because it's people collectively and consciously getting together to celebrate something or do something and make it special even though it's in other ways um, ordinary. So that was a that was one of the thoughts I had on that. I would also say that rituals can be used to mark different seasons. So you have a lot of in um, older cultures, you would have stuff that marked the end of fall and the beginning of winter, the, the beginning of spring. I, we call it Groundhog Day now. That's kind of but people don't really celebrate it anymore, make a big deal out of it. Um, but I think that there is though ritual uh, la- uh, lack of rituals for important stuff. For example when a child becomes an adult yes. there's no in in traditional in a lot of traditional cultures when they a boy or girl become a, a young adult there's a ceremony and then when they become an adult there's another ceremony or something like that but it's marking the a, a different stage in life yes. and it's marking a change and so when they don't have that it creates a lack of continuity but also importance and and I'm I'm trying to think of a, a I, I it it marks a clear division between two different parts of your life or two different parts of seasons. So like when does winter and fall like what's the difference? Well, we just decided on this day that's right. the beginning of this beginning of winter and this is the beginning of fall. Even though it may snow in the fall and rain in the winter, but that's just we mark those days or mark those times. So I I think that there are a lot of areas and opportunities for rituals today we just don't have them anymore which is kind of tragic thank you for tuning in to the safety doc podcast with the nation's leading safety expert dr david perodin author radio show host university instructor researcher expert witness and consultant powerful testimonials Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. I feel the same way. I feel a loss. Um, and and I don't know how to recapture that. Um, I, I think personally, I've been able to, to do that. Um, but, you know, again, I think it gets into people are mistaking routines or, or you get a ritual which becomes very I would say like it doesn't have any productive outcome the ritual would be um, before every yeah um, home game of whatever sports team I am going to paint my face blue and (laughs) and do a special design and this is my ritual um, because I feel that that this supports the team somehow um, juju yeah yeah and it's like well you know I, I guess you could say that that is a ritual, but it also is nothing that has 
any benefit to it. It's not causing you any chance to reflect. It's really just giving you an opportunity to be part of this collectivism and the pseudo perception that you're influencing externally something that you're all you're doing is is paying ticket prices and occupying a seat. Um, so I I don't I don't find it's that. An, but it's also a question of identity. You're identifying with a sports team. And I, I always ask somebody this question. What if they, for example, Richard Sherman, who's been part of the Seahawks for years, is now going with the 49ers. So what are you going, are, are people going to go support him and go with the 49ers? Or are they going to remain to be Seahawks? Like, what does it mean to be a fan of a team? Are you talking about the people? Because the, the team is just, it's just a, a, a franchise. It's not a, that's been a huge debate, actually, because the Seattle Sonics are now a defunct basketball team right. but the the history has gone with them the 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 team when they were sold so there's this whole issue of well then what is the team like what what are we we talking about are we just talking about a, a, a very kind of superficial identity um, as opposed to identifying a ritual that evokes identity on something that's deeper and right. it conveys your values your beliefs what you think is important in life um, and the the ritual, like you were saying, it needs to have meaning. Like it, it has to be for a purpose other than just itself. And I think that's a, that's what happened with rituals is that people forgot or stopped emphasizing why they were there. It was just almost. A, I think that there was an era in, especially in the United States, of conformity, where they were doing things that they should be doing. They just weren't doing. They weren't explaining why it was important, and they weren't passing on. The, the purpose of those. So people just said, okay, well, if they, people can't give me an excuse or a reason, a justification for why they should exist, then let's just get rid of them. Let's not do them anymore. Right. Well, now we're feeling the effects of that and trying to come up with explanations for why stuff is going on. And then we, but nobody wants to look back and say, well, maybe they, maybe they were right for the wrong reasons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, sort of like when people are always telling you to do something, they, no, do as I say, not as I do. Well, sometimes they, they are right. They're just not practicing it. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't, shouldn't do what they're saying. They're just not living it out in their own life. And I think that that's an opportunity for people to also socialize in person in real life rather than online. That's one way to do it is by coming up with a ritual. And people get confused. They'll think it's it's almost like a, a religious thing, like I was saying, but it doesn't have to be. You can make it if you want it to be, but you can also have it for something else where it's um, symbolizing relationships that you've built, where people within the group are going to understand it because they've gone through something with you or they've done something, you know, you went through a hardship or you worked on a project. For example, completing a, some sort of a project and you have a ritual to kind of close that and celebrate. I see that as an opportunity. You know, they're talking about in the workplace, the, the, the idea of doing rituals. Yeah, if you have a ritual where people who worked on the project together celebrate and there's there's some sort of, not like official ceremony, but just something that brings satisfaction and right, right. And, and, and recognizes that there's been a collective um, experience on that matter. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I... Um, I found a picture, and I was uh, replacing the cedar siding on the front of my house. And, and since we've had steel siding put on the house and all of that, but this was when we first moved in. Um, you know, so I was a 
I was in my late 20s. And, and back then, part of it was, um, you know, I, I did some of this stuff because nobody said I couldn't either. You know, like, so, <laughs> so I just figured it out. And, and I'm, it's, it's amazing. Like I made, you know, a door and I made drawers and I made, you know, other things in drywall and, and stuff just that you, I figured out that today I just don't do. But um, I'm looking at this one picture and I remember that I kind of redesigned the front of it a little bit without, you know, and I, and I just did it. I just kind of figured it out um, on the way that this entrance would be to the garage. Um, but I remember, though, the picture, I, I was in the last stage and I was putting up the, the last trim molding and I wanted my wife to come out and to take a picture. And then I was going to, you know, take this picture and, and share it with my, with my parents and stuff. But this picture, uh, um, you know, was basically then, you know, the ritual kind of went with it of, of me sharing this with, with some other people and, and talking about it. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a kind of this closure moment. Um, yeah. And so let's, let's kind of wrap up with, this has been, this has been absolutely in, intriguing. Um, minimalism. Uh, I've, I've, <laughs> I, I know okay. you, you've talked about minimalism and, and that, that is a, a wide range of discussion on what minimalism means to different, you know, people. Um, so what does it mean to you? And I'm, I'm going to just, you know, put this out of, of, um, is it evolving for you? Is it something like that you were more into and, and now not is into? How has it been perceived by uh, people around you, both positively and if pos- you know, negatively? Um, and, and, you know, do you find it liberating? Do you find it constraining? Um, kind of go, go through that with me. Yeah. I, so before I bought my house, I was living, I was renting out a bedroom and uh, at, so, at someone's house. And before that, I was living in a little studio apartment in uh, my hometown, which was very, very, very small. It was a bedroom with a kitchen. And then I went into this house. So I've been spending this process after having gotten rid of so much stuff to just minimize and get down to having as few things as possible. I'm now having to buy stuff or get or get more more books. I got rid of hundreds of books that I had had where I'd bought them for really cheap from like you know dime bookstores or whatever or goodwill and my experience over the years with minimalism is that it's a like so many other things there needs to be a balance because on one hand you're there's things that you're going to need and you don't want to have to go to the store every time you need it so having that having ability to go just to your garage or to your shed or to somewhere when you need a tool, when you need um, something, but you need space to store that stuff in. It's a question of does it serve a, a utility uh, or a purpose that is is worth having it around. But I also think that I'm, I'm a minimalist compared to most people who just collect a lot of stuff. And right. Right. I think that it's all a question of do you feel like you need something in order to be happy? And that's an issue that I've been thinking about as I'm trying to fill up my house with stuff. Do I need this? And if I don't, well, then I'll when I have spare money and I have the opportunity to get it, I'll get it. But my house was pretty sparse. Now I've been collecting furniture so that people can actually sit <laughs> when right. they come to visit. You know, and they got the table and all that. But I I still appreciate it. It's really a question of are you if you're going to be a homeowner, you're probably your minimalism is going to look different. But if you are going to do kind of like what Aaron Clary talks about in his book, Reconnaissance Man, I know it's about going around traveling. He recommends obviously not 
taking having the route where you own as few things as possible. You just want to have your backpack and your socks and your laptop and and not have that stuff constrain you because that is the reality is your stuff will constrain you. He also made a really good point. I'll think I'll add, you pay for things thrice when you buy it, when you store it, and when you move it. So the, the fewer things you have right. are going to reduce the that kind of stuff that kind of stuff. So I, I'm still trying to figure that all out, but it's definitely, my mind has changed a little bit on it. I used to be very hardcore minimalist, just want as few things as possible. But now that I'm, I'm a homeowner and I'm settling down a little bit for the long term, I can, I, I'm adopting a new mindset on that. So it's all about where somebody is at in their life. Do they want to have a house? Do they just want to rent out an apartment and bare minimum? And then they go out and their life is centered on what's outside of their, their, um, residents, so it's that. Those are questions that you're, they'll want to ask before moving forward with trying to decide how to what extent they want to be a minimalist. So, how about your friends? I mean, have they said to you, "Oh, come on, TJ, like th- that would be great for the 65-inch TV, or this would be whatever, or you know?" Ironically um, enough, I have a friend of mine who is the biggest minimalist I've ever met. He he has the fewest things of anybody I've ever known. So I went. He said, "Can you help me move um, one day?" We went into his bedroom and he had a, like three boxes and his bed, and that was about it. He's just wow. he lives he lives in one of those micro micro studios where it's just the bedroom. Yeah. Um, so he's he's achieved it, um, and I was trying to aspire to be that. But I also like having my books. I like having that traditional study and, and all that. And no, oh, but people haven't really given me too much of a hard time about that. Interestingly enough, I'm also not very evangelical about about my minimalism i'm more of a if it works for me great and if other people want to ask about it i'll certainly tell them but i'm not going to go around and say how about that how about the flip side have people come to you and and kind of emulating and saying wow tj like this is this is great like i i see that you know you're you're out you're doing things and and you know you're in shape and um how how did you do (laughs) it how you know tell me a little bit because i'm not there and i'd like to learn more about it um I think that is a good question because for me it was very an, an organic experience. Me just trying to figure stuff out and looking at whether it worked or not for me and where they're trying to go out in life. It really depends on what they're, they're wanting to accomplish. If they want to start doing more hiking, if they want to start doing other stuff. I think the caveat is you're, you might have to give up stuff. You might have to. So I, because I do so much of these things, there are other things I don't have time to do and that's okay. But I'm acknowledging that I'm not going to be able to do those things. And if I want to do more of of that, I'm going to have to give up elsewhere. You can't be everywhere. You can't do everything. You can't have it all. And I think for a lot of people, they, there's this mindset that you can do everything at the same time. At the, the multi, I don't know if it's a multitasking uh, era that we live in, but you know, if you want to, for example, if you want to get stronger and, and get in shape, there's things that you're going to have to do as far as routine. You're going to need to go to the gym every day. You're going to need to think about what you eat and, you know, not going out to eat maybe or, or whatever that is. And so it, it really depends on where somebody's at. But I, I would say, though, people – I've gotten mostly positive feedback. People tell me to keep – I was talking about I was going to cut down on social media stuff, and people go, no, please keep posting your stuff on Facebook right. because <laughs> – People they use the term Facebook stalking, so they they read my stuff. They don't comment or like it or whatever, but they like seeing it, um, like my Instagram stuff from my hikes. Because a lot of people, 
I, I understand right. if you're if you're married and you got kids, you're not going to have um, as much time to do that sort of stuff. So when there are husbands and fathers who are able to do a lot of stuff, I'm I'm amazed because I have hardly enough time to do the stuff I do now, and I have no uh, constraints in that area. So um, I, I'm just want to say to those who the husbands and fathers are able to do what, for example, what you're doing, it, I'm really impressed. Well, thanks. I I. Uh... You know, I took up the podcast um, about a year and a half ago just as an expressive means, and I wanted to learn the, the technology, and it has brought me in contact with tremendous uh, people from, um, you know, Sean Dickers, who has designed video games, um, all the way um, to um, Danny Woodburn, who was on seven, sign, seven episodes of Seinfeld, and then Paul Paul Rapp, head of military medicine, um, and and so you know I have a conversation with him, you know, and, and he's working with the White House, and and Paul's been on so many Nova and PBS type specials, and and just down to earth. I mean, just just great yeah. people. And and someone contacting me, um, Hector Solis, who's become a good friend of, of when I first started out, and said, I can help you with your audio because here's some things that you're not, you know, doing. You just don't know about yet that you should do for podcasting, but it's it's helped me be to learn about different topics, um, to stay current. And yeah, I, I enjoy it. Um, and I, then I have, I list, all I do is I listen to podcasts largely, you know, during, during the week. Well, I read to, but I'll probably listen to 10, 12 hours. So TJ, I listen to, to you, to Aaron, um, the sustainable living podcast, um, Gavin McInnes and you know a, a, a few others. I kind of I, I mean yeah. I, I just kind of like the get off my lawn. I think it's kind of funny and we're one year apart because so a lot of the things that he talks about are things in age that that I can relate to. Um, but you know it's funny you know we talk about we we talk about Aaron and Aaron will post photos on Twitter and it'll be today's office and it'll be just this incredible yeah you know. Scenic venue where he's driven out on his motorcycle and he stopped and he's just you know taking a, a picture. But you know he's achieved that because um, in his mid 30s he made a decision to exit banking, and then um, you know worked hard in as a security guard. And these are all things that you know that we anybody would learn through listening through his podcast um, and teaching ballroom dancing and, and just being um, learning how to fix his motorcycle and his you know used Kia vehicles and. Um, then being freed from debt and being able to do things <laughs> and travel and build these friendships. Um, so I, you know, I, I really admire that. And I'm looking forward to um, the summer. Aaron and I are going to do some golfing up in his ah, nice. area. So yeah, we are, we are going to find the absolute best bargain deal you know, when, <laughs> yeah, the 3.30 in the morning tee off time or whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> So uh, yeah, we, he's not getting up that early. No, he'll stay up that late. He'll, he'll get stay up, up that early. late. So it might be like, yeah, we might get the last one before he like goes to bed. Um, so, so yeah, I, but I like, um, you know, I, I, I like the fact that, that he stayed true to his word of, of, of stepping aside and, and really saying, and, and you mentioned this um, too in, 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 your review of his book, um, Poor Richard's Retirement, of saying, you know, when somebody passes in your life, passes on, um, and and you 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 mourn them, what you're really mourning, per Aaron, is that you didn't spend more time with that person when they were alive. You're you were 
prioritizing other things. Um, and, and maybe, am I correct in, in what I'm saying? I think that you had, you had said that. Yeah, yeah. That's a, That was probably, I think, one of the best things he wrote in that book was that people – I've always understood this. I didn't know how to articulate it to people, but everybody is in America today, for the most part, work a lot, and there's a lot of emphasis on just being busy. People are always telling me that they're busy, and the thing is time doesn't turn back and it doesn't you, – you don't get to revisit the past – uh, I think that's one of the harmful things of, of time travel movies is it gives people this false hope that they can maybe go back and, and change something or really relive something. But yeah, when you when somebody dies, you you realize anything you wanted to say to them, anything you wanted to do with them, anything that you wanted that relationship to be is never going to be um, in this life. And I think that's when people begin to realize the the permanence. Of, of death and especially in a society where death is really removed from from everyday life as opposed to maybe you know back in the middle ages when death was very much understood like it's going to happen and right. it's a part of it's just it it affects everybody the old the young die can die and so my thought is I want to spend time with people because I don't take anything with me when I die my possessions are gonna right. I think that that's something that I would always point out to people is that they have all this stuff, but what is the difference between a person who dies penniless and homeless and a person who dies with tons of stuff? Now, maybe their life experience was better, but that that's where it needs to count, not how much stuff did you have when you passed away that people are going to fight over when you die, as opposed to when you die, are people going to look at you and say, you know, feel that there was a fulfilled relationship that it was what it was meant to be or that it was what it could it, it became what it had the potential to become and people should always take opportunities to spend time with people that they care about or, or their friends or family rather than saying you know I'm, I'm too busy I think that that's a, a phrase that needs to we need to be careful about using and are we really too busy or are we just not prioritizing properly yeah I, I agree, and that's and that's where, you know, right right now, um, well, always. But Aaron is in. Well, he's coming back from the southern part of the the United States, but he's he prioritized people, so he's visiting, you know, and he'll say people like Denver Ben. I don't know who these people are, but I mean, all <laughs> these people that he he has has met and, and befriended, and then they go out and they do things, and especially he enjoys hiking. But I mean, these are all things of of when when he eventually. Um, passes on or you know is on his deathbed he's, he's going to look back and say i'm i did all of those things and i'm glad that i did them um one of my one of my friends um her mom had had died uh in in the hospital and and i remember uh she said to me you know after my mom died the the thing that stood out the most is i looked over and on the bedstand was my mom's purse. And I just thought, well, she's dead. The purse is there. It didn't go with her. Anything inside the purse. And just kind of this, this weird, you know, you're here and then you're not. And I, I've acquired um, a number of tools over the years just of relatives who have passed on, like my great-grandfather yeah. and grandfather. And so some of these things I, I take out and 
Um, the ones that aren't modern, you know, the, the tools that are maybe like from, you know, the 1860s, 1870s, where it's the hand <laughs> drill and, yeah. and, and everything like that. And, and the, the hand plane, I'm like, this stuff is just amazing to touch and to hold and to study of how this was used and the fact that it's still very vibrant today. Um, so that I keep for that purpose, but otherwise it's just this, this collection of screwdrivers and, and my neighbor, <laughs> uh, you know, he had a garage sale and he was bundling all of these toolboxes up and he's like, Dave, I've just, you know, people have died in the family. It's a big family. So I inherited tools and I already have what I need. And so I'm just trying to get rid of these things. Um, and I, you know, I, I remember I was, I was running the, um, the track late at night and my phone buzzed and, and my friend, Dan, who I had worked with early in my career, who was my age, um, had leukemia, and I was kept up to date by by both Dan and and sometimes he couldn't type, his wife would type, and he had taken up photography toward the end of his life um, because it really was kind of the only thing he could he could still do outside, and this very vibrant, you know, and and unfortunately, you know, just the disease had taken him down, and I remember, um, you know, visiting and 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 having a great time. Um, and, and I was running and my phone buzzed late at night and I looked and it was like a message from his wife. And I was just like, Oh, I just knew, yeah. you know, and yep. It's like Dan, you know, just passed away and, and he had made peace. Um, but I mean, it, it, you're right. There are so many things that, um, just what you can, you can have things or you can have experiences and, and you talk about experiences and you've done experiences and and that's where I hope people who who listen to you, who read your material, um, that they think about experiences first and possessions and and items second. Um, and that's just not the way that it is typically done today. And it was it was I had my taxes done yesterday, and we'll wrap this up. But I had my taxes done, and my tax guy, you know, I'm getting kind of retirement planning, you know, not there yet. Um, but, um, and he said, do you have anything like really big planned for the future? I said, well, you know, we've saved for the girls, but I said, I just kind of paused and I said, well, you know, the shirt that I had on, I said, I've probably had this thing for like 12 years. It's, um, you know, like outdoor hiking shirt. And then, um, I had my Navy, a pea coat, which is just gets re-sewn every time that needs a little bit. It goes to the dry cleaner. And then, you know, I said, that thing is, you know, and it'll last forever. I said, I, so that's just that. But I said, you know, my car is 11 years old, but I, I maintain it like great. And we put it in the garage every night. And, um, I said, I know, I mean, we, we might do, you know, like a Gettysburg or something like that. But I said, yeah. we have, we're not buying a second home and we're not, <laughs> not buying a, you know, um, you know, high speed boat or anything like that. I said, <laughs> if I, I don't. And he said, you know, you're in great shape then. Like you're, you're in great shape. And, um, I said, yeah. And I want to do, so that, that's a thing. I mean, if I can get home and I can do the sledding with my daughters or Friday night, my, my second grader had a school sock hop. So, you know, took her to the sock hop and, um, was up in the bleachers with the other parents, but you know, had fun, um, yeah. a little bit of talking with the other parents, but she's out there with the other kids and doing the sock hop. And then afterwards, you know, Hey, you know, it looked like you had a lot of fun. And when your friend and, and you were doing whatever during the the Macarena and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, so I, I appreciate that you are producing the content you're putting the time into it because I really enjoy it, TJ. And it's, 
Oh, thanks. I, I haven't found. Um, I guess I haven't found anything quite quite like what you you bring. I'm very interested in the books, um, and, and I mean, as I shared with Aaron, I said I'm I'm just excited because I mean it's like another another person is has come forward who who values experiences and and sees um, a a link to history, you know, like we're in the 1930s and, and, and where we were and where we are and, and not just like, Hey, today's like my, you know, video on how, you know, my top five video on how to do, you know, whatever, you know, to get the most YouTube subscribers or my challenge of, you know, foods, you know, that, you know, that, you know, can you style your hair with mashed potatoes or whatever? I mean, all these goofy things that are out there, you know, this stuff. I'm like, you're going to be kidding me. I mean, well, the Jojo Juice, what was that? That that one actor, she had some thing, but she had like a millions of YouTube followers. And yeah. she would just go on and, and she'd pour like either cranberry juice or whatever. That was her whole thing. She'd go in a shower and just stand there and, and just pour this stuff. And her mom recorded it. But then she got... She's on some Nickelodeon show now or something, the JoJo Challenge or whatever. I'm like, well, that's that's crazy. Stuff. Yeah. But anyway, so um, any can you give us your your website again and, and kind of what you're working on and go through the books one more one more time? Yeah. So my website is tjmarnell.com, and the two books that you can find on Amazon are the Stringers and the Informers. And then the third book that I'm planning to release next month is called Men Who Walk Alone. That's the one set in the 1930s, a um, bit of a whodunit, pulp noir uh, type genre. And then, you know, with with your books, um, what drives you to to do those and, and to complete those? I mean, that's I, I know a lot of people, including myself, I had a book contract. I still have an, a book contract <laughs> with an advance that I had the company hold an escrow. It was more of a technical book on um, 9-11 and the rescue of 500,000 people from Battery Park. But, you know, I wrote a few hundred pages of it, and then I just kind of stalled. And then I, I, so uh, what was the motivation for you to, to finish it? Do it, do another one, and now you got your third book. Um, I think I like doing content creation. I like creating things, and I like the, it's a, the ability to create characters that I want to see. That's what got me into writing in the first place. I was watching a TV show where I just did not like the characters. I felt like there wasn't anybody, any stories that were really conveying my values and the type of men that I wanted to see. And so I decided to write the books. Actually, Men Who Walk Alone was one of the first books I ever wrote. It's just gone through so many revisions over the years. And what drives me is just wanting to tell those stories and have the have it actually be completed and um i think it's i've also i haven't done as much writing recently because i've been doing so many other things uh, but i'm definitely planning on doing more more in the the future but i guess it's just motivation of just wanting to do something and take action and and not sit there and and consume the content or I guess a part of it is I can't complain about something and not do anything. It really bothers me. I just did that on my podcast about people who complain about what they see, but don't ever do anything about it one way or another. Maybe they don't like what they written in the newspaper. Maybe they don't like what they're seeing around the the country or in their community. So what are the, what are you going to do? And I didn't like what I was seeing in literature. So I decided to make my own. (laughs) 
Yeah. I guess that's the, the best way to do it. And I feel like that's what a lot of people should do is if you don't like what's out there, try and find a way to create your own. And I think there's also fulfillment in making something as opposed to just buying it from someone else. Wow. wow. Well, I, I admire that because I, I know personally the amount of time that, that goes into that. And yeah. I mean, you, you've published, I, I haven't published, um, yet. Um, so, well, TJ, I want to extend, uh, a great appreciation for your time on the safety doc podcast. And, you know, we talked about agency and purpose, um, routine and ritual, and also just encouraging people to think about activities um, and experiences versus, you know, accumulating things and, and, you know, or maybe those, those kind of false um, collectivism type things that people might, you know, get into, uh, you know, again, if I'm if I'm buying five jerseys with other people's names on the back, <laughs> you know what am I really accomplishing? You know, by that versus you know if I if I learn some sport on my own or even you know um, what, go out and watch my local you know like a lot of these towns not too far from us they have a minor league team like a you know the very early entry team but it's like college kids from all over and you can pay like five bucks and go in and, and it's just yeah. super fun to watch and then at the end you know you can actually go down and talk with some of the players and stuff like that and, and you know the people around you so i mean yeah things things like that i mean um so i, I think we've brought a lot of of discussion toward people in that thing too of of um, experience, experiencing life and not having that eighth grade class trip where people are shutting it down. And if it does get shut down to have a conversation, well, well let, let's open that up. Yeah. At, some, at some point in the, in the future, TJ, I'd like to have you back and to have you um, explain your work with um, the 10th Amendment um, writings that you've been doing. Yeah, the 10th Amendment Center. The tenth, and, and because for, you know, just for people that aren't aware, the 10th Amendment and, and you know, help you clarify this if I'm wrong, but the 10th Amendment basically states that any rights that, that aren't um, held by the federal government um, go to the state, and if the state doesn't, you know, take those rights, that they default them to the individual people. And I think that is so lost um, today yeah. that people just don't even think about that. That is, they completely feel that everything has been federalized probably maybe you know that there is some states but in, and i think we're seeing states start to stand up and and to exert some state control but we we really never hear though of what is left back for you know the local the individual yeah. and and there is quite a bit and i was able to pull off in some of my researches out there that people just have no idea about um so i, I think that's fascinating and something again you know we, we just don't hear enough about so yeah, I'd love to talk about it sometime. All right. Well, sir, thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, I appreciate all of your work. I am going to continue to listen to the TJ Martinell podcast. I do have um, every time there's a new one that comes out, you're on SoundCloud. Um, and so anybody that you know wants to find you can also go into SoundCloud and subscribe and download through SoundCloud and, and be able to, or, or to stream or, you know, to play. They have a really nice interface on SoundCloud. I used to be with them. I went to Podbean. So, um, because, of, yeah, Aaron is on SoundCloud. Aaron's here. Aaron Clary's <laughs> over there. He's, he's one of the, the mainstays on, on SoundCloud. So thank you again, 
TJ, and uh, I'll be interested in your um, upcoming release. And, and I've got to, to get into Amazon and probably use uh, Aaron Clary's Amazon affiliate link to purchase your book. So Aaron gets the That's 7% important. commission. So it's a win, win, win. It's win for, for all of us. <laughs> all right, TJ, thank you so much. All right, thanks, David.